And I would have conversations, and they would say, God's love is so good, it's so grand. And speak of God's love uh, in ways that are beyond um, comprehension. And I would immediately, I would downplay the love of God. And I would counter by saying, well, brother, don't forget that God is holy and God is just. You see, there's a tendency for people to just highlight and elevate the love of God and exclude all the other things that we know about God. But saints, at the same time, we are to highlight the love of God. In fact, if I was to go back, I would tell myself, probably slap myself in the face and say, you're, you're wrong. And wanting to detour someone from speaking of the love of God and move to something else we know about God. Well, yes, it is true. We aren't to forget about those other attributes of God. We aren't to pull our minds and our thoughts away from God's love, but rather what I should have said is, well, do you understand the immeasurable depths of God's love? Do you even understand how God has manifested his great love for you by sending forth his son, Jesus Christ? What do we need to do, saints, is we need to recover a way of speaking of God's love, not merely not speaking of God's love, but a way of speaking of God's love that actually does justice to the kind of love that he has. Again, we aren't to not speak of God's love, but we are to recover a way of speaking of God's love that does justice to the type of love that God has. It's an unchanging, immeasurable, infinite, perfect love that manifests itself in the giving of his son and the giving of the gift of his spirit. So this morning, saints, this text for us highlights the greatness of God's love, and I want us to see the greatness of God's love, God's love in just three simple points. Number one, the person of the one loving. Number two, the object of the person loving. And number three, the action of the person loving. Number one, the person of the one loving. So who is loving? Number two, the object of the person loving. How is or who is this love set upon? And number three, the action. How is this love displayed? Number one, the person of the one loving. Saints, and if there's anything that uh, you need to listen to, it's probably uh, this these first few uh, these first few minutes. Uh, when we think about God's love, specifically when we think about God's love for the world, and hear me now, we must remove every creaturely way in which we ascribe love to God. Again, when we think of God's love, specifically God's love for the world, we must remove from our minds every creaturely way in which we ascribe, give to God, love. We say God is love. Well, we are to say God is love, but in saying that, remove every single way in which God's love is like our love. You see, even though the Bible reveals to us a God who is love, who does love and continues to love, we're always to view this love by way of analogy. In fact, everything we say about God is by way of analogy. Every single thing. In other words, we have a 
creaturely concept of what love is, because in our minds, we know what love is. We express that love to others in action. We know what that love feels like because it's in us. But we aren't to ascribe that definition of love to God. Again, there's a threefold way in which we know what God love is. We know it in our intellect. We know it within us, what it feels like, but also we ascribe that to others. But saints, we aren't to bring that definition of love when we consider the love of God. For God's love is beyond our love. In fact, we would say that God's love is not only beyond our love, not only beyond the way we think of love, not only the way we feel love, but also the way we express that love. So we want to say something like, God's love is just a little bit better than how we love. Or rather, God's love is just a a perfected version of our love. Rather, God's love is beyond all of our thoughts of what love is. All of the ways we give love to others. All of the feelings that we have and we know of what love feels like. God's love is not in the arena of human love. It's a different incomprehensible, something that we can't even lay hold of. So what kind of love is this, saints? What kind of love is God's love? Well, there's many things we can say, but just two things we can highlight. Number one, God's love does not change. God's love does not change. God tells wicked Israel in Malachi 3, 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you sons of Jacob have not come to an end. It's very interesting, this text, because it's the end sort of a, of the Old Testament era. And Israel, for this long period of time, has been, has, has, has had this relationship with God where they love him one day, they hate him the next. They love him one day, they hate him the next. And in the midst of such adultery, in the midst of a marriage that from all accounts looks like it's failing, God says, before the people go into 400 years of silence and wandering, I do not change. In fact, it's the openings, he opens Malachi with, I love you. No matter all that you've done for me and all that you've done to me, my love for you has not changed, Israel. Now, this is quite different from the way that we love, is it not? Case in point, there once was a time when you didn't love me. And now, hopefully, (laughs) by God's grace, you do love me. Or there once was a time when you didn't love a certain meal, And then, out of the blue, you began to love a certain meal. Like, for instance, myself. I didn't love at one time vegetables. Now I love vegetables. Many things that my father used to make me as a child, I hated. Now I love them. So our love is always changing, right? You're going from highs and lows when we consider our love. 
But we aren't to think that when we consider the love of God. Saints, this is a wonderful truth, is it not? I mean, we can stop here and go home. God's love does not change. And secondly, we can say that God's love does not depend. God's love does not depend. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, and here it is, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. You see, God doesn't go from potentially loving you to actually loving you. God doesn't love you on Sunday and then on Monday because you prayed to him, you read the Bible, you preached the gospel to someone, you evangelized, you did all these things, that by the end of Monday, he loves you more than he loved you on Sunday. It doesn't work like that. God's love for you does not heighten. And God's love for you does not lessen. For if God's love for you to heighten or for his love for you was to lessen, then we would ascribe change to God. And God cannot change. Very different from us, right? I mean, many of us love others because we want that love in return. We expect that love to be given back to us. That's one of the great things about when a man meets a woman. He meets her and he sets all of his love and energy to her and upon her and hopes that that love would be reciprocated. That that love would be returned in kind. That's not the case with God. Saints, God doesn't love you so that you can love him. But rather, God is blessed eternal. And when we come to John 3.16, and when we consider God's love for the world, we see another truth of God's love that we must get right, and that is the freedom of God's love. The freedom of God's love. That is to say, God was under no absolute necessity to give to the world his only begotten son. And in the same way, we can say that God was under no absolute necessity to love the world. God didn't need to love the world. God didn't need to love the world. There was nothing that constrains God to love the world. But God's love is a free love. It's a love that doesn't depend on anything. God doesn't love the world because of anything in the world, but rather, this is a high mystery. God chose to love the world. There is nothing in the world that caused God's love, but rather God chose freely to love the world. And this is very different from how many view this verse. Immediately, if one is preaching on John 3.16, one might say, well, The world is the ground and foundation of God's love. That the reason why God loves the world is because the world. For example, some might say the world was so lovely in the sight of God that God was moved to love the world. Or one might say, and this is popular, that the world was so sinful And God was moved to such compassion 
that he sets his love upon the world. Saints, those are creaturely ideas of God's love. God is not moved in any way. God is not a man. Therefore, we must not speak of his love as a love of a man. He doesn't love like we love. Because he's not who we are. So the question is, why does God love the world in this way? Since the world itself is not the ground of God's love, since the world itself is not the cause of God's love, why does God love the world in this way? What is the ground of God's love? The ground of God's love is his own unchanging and perfect love. Again, the ground, the foundation, why God loves the world is his own unchanging and perfect love. If one was asked, why does God love the world in this way? The only answer that one could give is simply this, because God loved. That's it. Now, you might say that is a very insufficient answer. It doesn't tell me anything. But saints, in fact, that is the only answer that one can give. Why does God love? Because God. Why does God do anything? Because God. Now, we can go down the list. We can talk about many things and give many speculative reasons of why God does what he does. But in order for us to get a sufficient answer, an answer that might allow us uh, to check all the boxes, we would have to pry into the very mind of God. And saints, who knows the mind of God? Who knows why God does what he does? And who knows why God would set his perfect love upon imperfect people? Why does God love? Why does God do anything? Because God chose to love. Now, many will say in our text that, or any, everything that I have said thus far is uh, refuted by the text itself. For the text says, God so, so, big, bold letters, long, drawn out, infinite O's, so, Loved the world. Now many will read that. And thereby read into the text that John is speaking of this great love that God has for the world. And what I mean great is a a number that you can put on. So loved the world. He loved the world this much. Just as when I tell my wife every single day, every single second, and many of you husbands do as well. Honey, I love you so much. Why do we use the word so? Because the word so implies a quantity, right? We use the word so when we are wanting to to highlight the great measure of a thing. So we say, man, I love this pizza so much. You know, when me and my brother go eat out, I say, gosh, that bread was so, so good. You know, we exaggerate and we, you know, use our hands and change the, the tone of our voice, right? But we use that word so to highlight this great measure of the thing. 
But saints, we aren't to think that this is what the text is saying. In the same way that we use so to highlight the quantity of our love, John here is not highlighting the quantity of God's love. He's not saying God so loved the world just as I so love my wife. Let me give you two reasons why this isn't the case. Number one, there is no such thing as a quantity of God's love. There is no such thing as a quantity of God's love. God is infinite. God is immeasurable. We can't drop our anchor at the great ocean of God's being in hopes that at one day, at one particular time, that anchor is going to drop at the bottom, and then we can measure the bottom from the top. Saints, if we dropped our anchor at the great ocean of God's being, our anchor will, will never come down. In Job 39, 26, Elihu, one of Job's friends, says this, Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. So the argument is this, since God is infinite, and since he himself is immeasurable, then his love is infinite. And his love is immeasurable. And his love is not something that you can measure. His love is not in quantity. God doesn't have a great big jar of love next to him. There's no such thing as a quantity in something that is immeasurable. It's very different than how we love saints. God himself, God is love. Now, I can get into all the metaphysics of what this means, but simply this. You are loving. God is love. You are loving. But God is love. Love for you is not essential to who you are. You could be human and not have love. But for God to be God, it means for God to love. Isn't, isn't that amazing? For God to be God, it means for God to love. Secondly, this word so should not imply God's love for the world in such a great measure, but rather this word so should be read in this way. In this way. I mean, that's how that, this, this, this phrase in this way is really hard to translate from the Greek. So translators rather use the word so. But rather, we should read that God loved the world in this way. It's sort of like if I was to do something and I wanted you to copy me and I said, do it like so. Do it in this manner. Do it this way. Well, in the same way, we can say that God loved the world in this way, in this manner. But in addition to this text highlighting the person who is loving this, it highlights the object of the one who's loving. Again, it, it speaks of the greatness of God's love. For God so loved the world. And saints, we can say the same thing in reference to the Son, that the Son so loved the world. That the Spirit so loved the world. But this text here also highlights the one whom God is loving. Who's the object of God's love? And, and this is where... This should be the surprise of the text. Whom is this love being set upon? 
The text says the world. You see, it should say, for God so loved the world that he loves himself. Because that's fitting and right. But rather it says, for God so loved the world that he, he loved the world. God's love is set upon sinful man, both Jew and Gentile, without distinction. And this right here, this would be shocking to the ears of Nicodemus, who thinks that this Messiah is merely for the Jewish line. But here in our text, it says that God loves the world, all without distinction, sinful man. What a great mystery this is, is it not, saints? The mystery is this, that why would God, in his infinite wisdom and perfection, why would he love the world? Well, again, we want to say that God loves the world for what the world can do for him. He wasn't moved to love the world, but rather he chose to love the world. He chose to love a world of sinners. He chose to love a world of sinners. This is the object of God's love. Sinful man. And this is amazing love, is it not? For none of us would ever choose to love the murderer. None of us would ever choose to love the the child molester. None of us would ever choose to love the adulterer, the liar, the stealer. None of us. None of us would ever choose to love the most evil of the evilest. But here we see that God chose to love sinners. And friends, we as sinners are the most evil of the evilest. And this is what this makes God's love of high mystery. For the object of God's love are men and women who are not deserving of God's love. Isn't that the high mystery of God's love as he sets his love upon some people who don't deserve his love? And friends, this is the constant theme in the Bible. That God loves sinners. You might say, well, I thought he loved the elect. You are a sinner. You are chosen, but you are a sinner. No verse captured this truth more explicitly than when Paul says in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us. When did he show forth his love for us? When did this happen? Did it happen when we were saved? The moment we'd, we repented of our sins and turned to Christ? No, he says, while we will steal sinners, Christ died for us. In the midst of our sinfulness, he demonstrates his love for us. He doesn't wait for us to get our act together. He displays his love while we're in the act of not getting it together. While we were still enemies of God, while we were still haters of God, God freely loves unloving sinners. Chose to love this sin-cursed world. While in our sin, God manifests his perfect love for us. And how does he do that, saints? How does God manifest his love for us? How does he show for love, his love for us? Our text says he gave. He gave. 
He gave his only son. Now, it's been said that you really can't know what love is until it's tested. In other words, the depths of one's love for you cannot be seen until it's proven. A boy may tell a girl he loves her, but it doesn't mean anything until that love has shown itself in activity. Words can merely be words. And in order for us to know how much one loves us, that love at some point must be demonstrated. If you love me, do X, Y, and Z. As one great theologian has said, the proof of love is in the works. Where love exists, it works great things. And saints, no greater proof of love has been demonstrated than the Father giving his only begotten Son. I mean, just think about that. That what can rival the Father giving the world his Son? A man gives a woman a red ring as a proof of his love. Parents give their children food and shelter as a proof of their love. But what compares to this? That the Father gives undeserving people his son. As the Puritans would say, God gives to his own the rarest jewel in his cabinet. He gives the world the most precious of his, and that is his son. You see, saints, the Father gives to the world a gift that can never be outmatched. We can never find someone or something that can rival or compete with the gift that the Father gives to sinners. Now, many of us just coming out of Christmas, I'm sure there's many things that you received. And the moment you receive them, if there was a great gift, and all the gifts that I gave my family members uh, were great gifts, I hope. Tony's actually wearing one of the gifts I gave him, uh, (laughs) is the reaction is what you're waiting for, right? I mean, when you know you're going to give something good, you're waiting for that reaction, and the reaction is usually, oh, my, I can't believe you got this for me. Because you know the great worth of that thing. You know the extent by which that one went to to get you the thing. Well, saints... How much more are we to think in the great gift that God has given to us in his son? I mean, does it, does it astonish you when you think about whom is given to this world? It is the son. Not just any person, the son. The father gives to this sinful world his beloved son, his natural son, the son that has always coexisted with him from all eternity, the son from whom in ages eternal he brought forth, this son, this natural son that he always took delight in, this natural son whom shares all power and all glory with, this son, That is very God as he, the father, is very God. This son, the eternal son, is given to man. Not an expensive sweater. 
not a diamond ring, but his infinite son. God pays off our debt by giving to us the greatest down payment. And that is his eternal son. Isn't that interesting that we owe a debt to God and God pays off our debt by giving to us the payment for the debt? And that is his eternal son. And friends, just as the father gives to us his son, we can say also the son gives himself to us. He gave us 33 years of obedience to God's law. The son gave himself to be tempted by Satan. He gave himself to be mocked. He gave himself to be betrayed. He gave, as Isaiah 50 verse 6 says, my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. He gave. He gave all of him. He gave his hands to be nailed and his feet to be pierced. The son gave himself to suffer and die for sinners. And saints, what is the purpose of this giving? Why? What is the reason? Our text says, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. In other words, this should be read so that all the believing ones, all the ones who were chosen before the foundation of the world, all the ones whom the Father gave to the Son in times eternal as a love gift, this one, these people, not everyone, but a specific group, the ones whom the Son has sent to have and to give eternal life to. Here, John is not saying that the Father sent his Son to make salvation possible, but rather, Jesus Christ comes down from heaven to make salvation actual. See, we don't have a potential Savior in Christ. We have an actual Savior in Christ. Christ doesn't go to the cross and says, man, I hope someone believes and repents. I hope this blood is efficacious for someone. But as many church fathers have said, much greater than I, that our name was written on his heart. That our sins were pierced when his hands were pierced. That God on the cross knew every single person whom he was dying for. And I don't mean merely by his divinity, but in his humanity. That Jesus Christ knew every single person in this room. If you are a believer in Christ over 2,000 years ago on the cross knew you. And was dying for your sins. Jesus Christ accomplishes all that the Father has sent him to do. And that is give sinners eternal life. And saints, eternal life here doesn't mean merely a duration of one's life. That now, hey, you can live forever. 
sinners in hell are going to live forever. But rather, eternal life here means nothing else than the enjoying of God in perfect beatitude. It's the enjoying of God in perfect beatitude. Eternal life, it's man's intended destiny back in the Garden of Eden. It is what Adam was was working towards. This heightened communion bond, to see God face to face, enjoying him forever. A life of uninterrupted, unchanging, eternal communion with God. And this is the purpose of the Father sending the Son, so that men and women, by the Spirit, can become sons and daughters of God. I mean, saints, that is what the Bible says. This is what has been the constant theme throughout church history. Is that God became man. So that man can become sons and daughters of God. That us sinners may be healed and may be elevated to be saints. As we close, saints, one of the great things you can do as a Christian is meditate on the fullness of God's love. This is why I love so much of us this morning not singing or singing the hymns without seeing the lyrics. Because it causes us now to really think about what we are saying. To, to really try to get a grasp that words are not merely words. But we can actually meditate on my soul as well. What does that even mean? We can meditate and contemplate and think on all of these gifts that God has given to us in Christ. Saints, when was the last time You meditated and contemplated on verses such as we love because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19 or maybe 1 John 3.1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Or maybe Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God. Great who loved me and gave himself for me. Or maybe John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Or maybe lastly, Psalm 136, 26, give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. You see, saints, at times we can get so caught up in confessing something and not really contemplating and meditating on what we are confessing. And it can be such a simple truth such as God loves you. This morning, saints, that is my my great herald to you. What I leave you with is this, that God loves you. Now, In what way does God love you? How do we describe this love? That's for us to find out. Let's pray.